The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of God abides forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We we'll always have a few moments of silent prayer, so that if necessary, you can avail yourself of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a few moments of silent prayer so that in the privacy of your priesthood, you can uh, confess your sins to God the Father. Instantly, there is forgiveness, restoration of fellowship, recovery, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the clarity that it gives us, for the insight it gives us into your plan for human history, and especially your plan for Israel. Now, Father, as we continue our study of this crucial passage and important chapter of Daniel 9, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that are being uh, revealed here, and help us to understand in our own thinking and gain a divine viewpoint framework for history, that we may better understand the things that are going on in our world today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think right now with everything that's going on in, in the Middle East, everybody's glued to their television sets, watching the news, each day wondering if there's going to be more suicide bombers, each day uh, what's going to happen, what it's going to bring. Um, we just don't know. Uh, we're living in a chaotic world. We know one thing, that Israel, God has a plan for Israel, and Israel is going to persevere. We also know that uh, the rapture can occur at any moment, and there doesn't have to be anything take place uh, for the rapture to occur. So it could be tonight, it could be tomorrow, it may not be for another 20, 30 years, 100 years, we don't know. But uh, it certainly looks as if uh, God is setting the stage more and more for the events of the tribulation. Now one thing that has occurred to me, and we're going to cover this a little more on Sunday morning, but one thing that has occurred to me is that there's a statement we often make about prophecy and the rapture, that is a little bit confusing. So let me go over the principle. First of all, no prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture. No prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture. Now, what that means is that the next event that we know of, that we know of with certainty that will happen in God's timetable, is, is the rapture. Nothing has to take place before the rapture. We're not looking for the appearance of the Antichrist. We're not looking for the... Uh, appearance of the Ten Nation Confederacy. We're not looking for uh, 
the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, none of those events are, are the next stage that we know about. The next thing that we're to look for is the blessed hope of our Lord's appearing. That's what the church's hope is. We're looking forward to that. However, once the rapture occurs, when the rapture occurs, that ends the church age. Now, there's going to be some sort of interim period, and as we're going to see in our study of Daniel 9, when we get to the end of the chapter, what begins the tribulation is a peace treaty that is put into effect between the Antichrist and Israel. So what we have looks something like this. Let me chart this out. Here's the cross on the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after the crucifixion. You have the beginning of the church age when the Holy Spirit descends uh, on the disciples in Jerusalem. That began the church age. In the church age, God has set aside Israel temporarily and is not currently working through Israel. But as we're going to see when we get to this fantastic prophecy at the end of Daniel 9, is that there is still a seven-year period, a seven-year period that God designated specifically for Israel that has not yet come to pass. And that will not come to pass until what is called the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, that uh, is the next uh, major dispensation in history. Now, before the tribulation can start, because the emphasis on the tribulation is on Israel, the church has to be taken out of the way. So Jesus Christ returns in the clouds for the church. And we, uh, the dead in Christ, shall rise first, and we are who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with him in the clouds. That event is called the rapture. Now, after the rapture, the next clear event in prophecy is the signing of that peace treaty between the Antichrist, called the Prince who is to come in Daniel seven, I mean Daniel nine, and Israel. So there's going to be the signing of this peace treaty. Now, apparently, there is some transition period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Now, at the beginning of the tribulation, certain things are going to be in place. First of all, we know, number one, there has to be a nation, Israel, in the land. You can't sign a peace treaty with a non-existent nation. So there has to be a nation in the land. Second thing, there, either at that time or close to that time, there is going to be the rebuilding of a, of a temple. On, and it has to be on the Temple Mount. That's going to take place. Certain other things may or may not transpire, but there are certain things that, ha- that will come to pass in that early stage of the, tri- of, the, um, of the tribulation. Now, the thing is, be- in order to get things prepared for what's going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation, as you in- near the end of the church age, certain events that relate to Israel and relate to setting things up in Israel for this seven-year period, may start to take place right here towards the end of the church age. And some of those things may be fulfillment of prophecy. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, where you have the vision of the dry bones, and Ezekiel has his vision where there are the dry bones in the passage, and they're just all scattered out throughout, the, uh, throughout this valley, and then the bones start to come together. And as the bones are joined together, eventually sinew is put on the bones, and, and eventually there is uh, muscle put on the bones and flesh, and, uh, and then there's life given to that new body. And that's a picture of the regathering of Israel. And at first they're dead. See, they're dry bones. They're still dead. 
So that is the, the regathering of Israel as a nation that has to be there at the beginning of the tribulation is going to start at the end of the, tri- at the, end of the church age. That means there, there's very likely to be prophecy fulfilled or partially fulfilled or beginning to be fulfilled at the end of the church age, not for the church, not for the rapture, but in order to set things up for what's going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation. That does not mean that prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture can occur. Or if you start seeing these stage-setting events start to take place, that the rapture is necessarily right around the corner. To say nothing has to take place, no prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place, is a much different statement from saying that some prophecy might be fulfilled right at the end of the church age to prepare the groundwork for what's going to take place immediately following the rapture in that new dispensation of Israel. And it's very likely that we're seeing some things happen today, but we don't know that. You can't say for certain. Nobody can look out there and say that this event, I've had people emailing me this week saying, well, do you think that maybe this has to do with the battle of, uh, of uh, Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and that we may see an Arab coalition here and Russia brought in? And That's just pure speculation. Uh, you don't know how some of these things are going to take place until they actually happen. That's one thing we ought to learn about prophecy and prophetic fulfillment from Daniel. Daniel saw certain things when he, at the end of Daniel chapter 8, when he's given this fantastic vision about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the uh, rise of the uh, shaggy goat, the he-goat there, at the, uh, uh, that's just uh, two centuries removed from Daniel. Daniel knew certain things. He knew that the, that the uh, first goat that he saw with the two horns was the Media and Persian Empire. He knew that the shaggy goat was going to be Greece. But he did know precisely how every detail was going to work out. He had a general, general framework and a general idea. And that's what we have when we look at prophecy. We have a general idea, but, but what's, going to, what's going to be fascinating is when we sit and watch these things actually unfold, we're going to say, oh, that's exactly what that means. You know, it's, it's like we, we see it, but we're looking through, uh, uh, for those of us who are getting a little older, it's like we, we see it and we catch its form but we don't have our glasses on. It's like getting up on Sunday morning trying to read the morning paper, and you, you wait a minute, where did I put my glasses last night? You know, it's not quite in focus. You, you, you can hold it out maybe at arm's length and get a fairly good idea, but you really need to have that focus tweaked a little bit, and we won't until it actually happens. Now, I am not saying, I want to make this clear, I'm not saying that anything that we're seeing right now is definite fulfillment of prophecy other than the regathering of Israel. And I think that definitely, uh, this is the first time in 2,000 years that there have been, there is a nation in the land and there are incredible things taking place. So I think that we are, uh, we very possibly could be very close. We may not be, but it just seems that way. And as things uh, continue to set the stage, it could be 10, 20 years from now, there could be some real international turmoil. We have to be aware of the fact that just as I think it was yesterday, Iraq, th- Iraq threatened to re- not send, send any oil to the U.S. for 30 days. That really isn't going to do much damage. We don't get that much oil from Iraq. But, but for a day, it upset the oil markets, and prices uh, spiked yesterday, and people ran around uh, worried about it. But, you know, Saddam Hussein always threatens these things. He never pulls it off because Iraq needs the money. So they, uh, they, he, he says they're not going to sell it, and then they go ahead and sell it. But the thing is that that threat is real. There has been talk in the last week about 
uh, the various other Arab nations having some kind of oil embargo again. Whether or not they pull that off remains to be seen. But we live in an age where, and a time right now with this war against terrorism, which is really a war against radical Islam or Islamic terrorists. If you think about it, every group uh, that is named, with the exception of North Korea, Every group that is in the, in the axis of evil, every other group that is targeted is a radical Islamic group. Now, you just, you don't have to be real bright to be able to connect the dots here. Uh, the State Department and the President do not want to connect the dots for us because that has radical implications. But it doesn't take much to connect the dots and we have many, uh, still have many members of Al Qaeda, many terrorists who are inside this country who are waiting for orders. And it is just the grace of God that we've caught as many as we have. We've foiled a lot of plots, and we have arrested a number of people and managed to completely disrupt their organization so that nothing more has happened since September 11th. But we need to be prepared. We live in very uncertain times right now, just as Daniel did. Think about the events that we are studying here in Daniel chapter 9. Last time we began this great chapter... And we saw that it was in the first year of the reign of, of King Darius. Now, the first year of King Darius was a year of turmoil. For 70 years, Babylon had been a stable world empire under the uh, control of first Nebuchadnezzar and then his descendants. Then, after there had been about three years of warfare where the Medes and the Persians had been gathering like storm clouds on the horizon, now they have finally, in a fantastic uh, a strategic or tactical move captured Babylon and overthrown the uh, the Babylonian Empire, and we studied that back in Daniel chapter five. That has just taken place, so it is a time of international crisis. It's been a time of where everything has been upset. You can imagine what it did to the world markets at that time, and yet it's in the midst of that that we have we watch Daniel as a mature believer who has stability. Why does he have stability? Because he's able to look at the crises that are going on around him, the storms that are, are taking place. Uh, we can uh, well imagine that in the midst of those kinds of crises, as you shift from one empire to another, how it affects the markets, how it affects imports and exports, how it affects um, money, monetary exchanges, the economy of the time, how it affected jobs, how it affected families because there were people who were killed, people, uh, military men who lost their lives. There were political leaders who lost their lives. There were friends of Daniel who were killed during that time. It is a time of tremendous crisis, and yet it is a time of stability for believers because they know what is going on. They understand that history is God's plan and the outworking of God's plan, and so we can just relax and enjoy the show, and it gives us also a great opportunity to witness to people. I, mean, I think that, that right now as I've watched the events going on on CNN and Fox News and, and uh, MSNBC and every night watching the news, I keep thinking about what must it be like as an unbeliever, as someone who does not know that Jesus Christ controls history, someone who does not know that they have an eternal destiny in heaven, to watch these events, they must be scared to death. Ever since September 11th, people are, are rethinking their priorities. You hear all these stories about folks who are rethinking their lives, rethinking their priorities, rethinking their relationship with their family, changing their jobs. Funny, I haven't noticed one person at Preston City Bible Church change their job, rethink their priorities, reevaluate their, uh, their relationship with their friends and family because uh, most of you already had those priorities squared away from doctrine. 
but people who don't have the word, don't have an eternal focus, an eternal perspective to focus on the details of life, are, are running scared, and that gives us an opportunity to share the gospel with people. And again and again, we need to take advantage of those opportunities. Now, this is what's true for Daniel, because Daniel has specific revelation as to what is taking place during this time, and he has to, he is going to pray on the basis of that revelation. And last time we saw, we began to look at Daniel's preparation for his prayer. Daniel chapter 9 begins with uh, Daniel's prayer. This is, that's the focus of this chapter down through uh, verse 19, is Daniel's prayer for the nation. But before we can get into the details of Daniel's prayer, we have to understand Daniel's preparation. And last time we looked at a variety of passages in First Chronicles 29, Jeremiah 29, uh, passages in Leviticus chapter 26 that were familiar to Daniel. Daniel knew the scriptures. This prayer is not the result of God appearing to Daniel or God giving Daniel a, another vision. Daniel had the previous visions. He has a framework for history. But what happens in Daniel 9 is not the result of a vision. It's the result of his study of the Word of God. See, prophets had to also study the Word of God. It, it, we, sometimes we get this idea that in the Old Testament that it was norm, normative in the life of every Old Testament believer for God to speak directly to the believer. I think this is one of the greatest distortions of the modern charismatic and Pentecostal movement is they get people thinking that somehow that's how God has always operated. But even in the Old Testament, the theophanies, the Christophanies, the uh, visions and dreams that God gave were extremely limited. It was only to a small group of people. In fact, it was probably less than 100 people during that 2,500-year uh, period from uh, or to, from the uh, Noah's flood up to the time of Christ, fewer than a hundred people had this kind of direct revelation from God. It was not a normal thing. What was normal was that they were to study the Word. They were to study the Mosaic Law. They were to, as the as the writer of Deuteronomy said, as Moses said, they were to bind it on their foreheads. They were to bind it on their hands. It was to be a part of their thinking. That that's what that symbolized. It was part of their thinking. It was it had an impact on everything they did, everywhere they went. The Word of God was to affect everything. But they were to be students of the Word of God first. And so Daniel is a student of the Word of God, and it is his study of the Word of God that motivates and energizes this prayer in Daniel chapter 9. So we're going to start where we ended last time with a quick review of Jeremiah 29. So hold your place in Daniel 9 and turn back to Jeremiah 29. Remember, Jeremiah was one of the uh, three great prophets to Israel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And Jeremiah like Ezekiel and Daniel, lived at the time that Israel went out, or the southern kingdom of Judah actually, went out under the fifth cycle of discipline when they were removed from the land that God had promised them. And so we have to go back to what God had promised in Leviticus 26 and 27, and that is that God had promised Israel a specific piece of real estate. That's clearly spelled out in the what we call the Palestinian our real estate covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 30. God promised Israel a specific piece of real estate, and the borders of that were the river of Egypt, which is somewhere down around the uh, 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 wadi in between Egypt and the Sinai, from there to the Euphrates and back to the 
back to the Mediterranean. That's a huge piece of real estate. covers most of what is modern Israel, modern Jordan, a uh, lot of Syria, and part of uh, modern Iraq. All falls under that land that God gave, that God pr- promised Abraham. Now remember, God promised that to Abraham, but Abraham always lived in a tent. He never saw that promise fulfilled. Not, not at all. He, God promised Abraham, I will give you this land. Second, God promised his son Isaac, I will give you this land. Third, he promised his grandson Jacob, I will give you this land. Yet Abraham never owned that land. Isaac never owned the land. Jacob never owned the land. And Jesus used that as an argument for resurrection. That they will be resurrected. God will fulfill that promise. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will own that land and control that land. But that takes place yet in the future. So there is a future fulfillment of that promise that God never fulfilled to Israel at any time in the Old Testament. Never once did they control that piece of real estate. There is a future for Israel. And the promise, as we saw last time, and as part of the Mosaic Covenant, there were blessings and cursings. And as part of the, the Mosaic Covenant, God promised that if Israel disobeyed God, that he would remove them from the land. But if they turned back to him, then God would restore them. And that's where we stopped last time. We saw that Daniel understood that and understood that God had, a pro- had made a promise to restore the Jews to the land. And then we come to Jeremiah chapter 29. Look at verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter. Now this is not the main book of Jeremiah. This is a segment. At the time that Daniel lived, this letter is, is, is like one of the epistles we would have in the New Testament. It is not attached to the main scroll of Jeremiah. It was attached later. But this is direct revelation from God to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah to give them information about how they are to live and what they are to do during the 70 years of exile. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile. See, Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem and he is giving this uh, information to those who have already been taken out in the exile, such as those in the first group with Daniel in 605 B.C., those in 598 B.C. with Ezekiel. Uh, These are instructions as to how they are to handle the exile. Skip down to verse 4. That says the Lord, of, the Lord of hosts, that is Yahweh of the armies, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice the God-directed history here. It is not Nebuchadnezzar who took these into exile. It is God who sent them. It is an active voice verb. God sent them into exile. God is emphasizing the fact that he is still in control. He controls their discipline. He controls... He he controls their uh, calamity. He is still in control even though they're not in the land. Uh, He tells them that they're to settle down. They are to live and operate culturally within this country of their captivity. Verse 5, they're to build houses and live in them. They're to plant gardens and eat their produce. They are to take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. They're to live a normal life. They're to plant down roots. They're to become involved in the everyday life and affairs of Babylon. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. In other words, don't isolate yourselves. Be involved in the politics. Be involved in the culture. And pray for its welfare. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, or in its welfare you will have welfare. You know, there's an application there for believers, because our citizenship is not on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, and so we need to apply the same principle. We need to be actively engaged 
in our world. We need to be engaged in local politics. We need to be engaged in state and national politics. We need to be engaged in the affairs of our world to the degree that it is not a distraction from Bible doctrine and application of the Word. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. This is really a reference to false prophets. And do not listen to the dreams which they dream. See, just because prophets prophesy and dreamers dream and they say there's a word, of, word from God, they have a word of knowledge, doesn't mean they know anything, doesn't mean it's coming from Scripture. They are deceived. God is saying, I'm going to put, has promised that he's going to put them into captivity for 70 years. It's not going to be shortened by their prayers. God has outlined that specifically, and God's going to stick to his word. See, there are some things that we can pray for, and it will not change God. But there are other things that we can pray for, and God will change. And that's part of what we're going to see in Daniel's prayer. Do not be afraid to challenge God in prayer. All you can hear is no, but that doesn't mean that we can't challenge God in prayer uh, based on his, his word. We'll see that tonight. Verse 9, For they, that is, these prophets and diviners, prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And then we get the, the details of the prophecy in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, that is, 70 years from 605 B.C., 605 B.C. down to uh, 535 B.C., now, you ask, well, this is 538 B.C. and Babylon's already taken out. What's the uh, difference? And that's the transition period. That, this is a 70-year period related to their captivity. And in 605 B.C., the first group went out. And in 535 B.C., the first group returns. In 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. So you see, you really have a period of 20 years from 605 to 586, a transition period uh, as Israel is, is transitioned out of the land. The fifth cycle actually begins in 605 when the first group gets taken out of the land. But it is not brought to a completion till 605. See, biblical history doesn't always have these clean dates. That's why I'm saying that there's this transition period between the end of the church age and the beginning of the rapture. Now, that's not has not always been clearly taught. Some people think it could be I don't, but you, nobody has, it's pure speculation. Nobody has anything to base it on. Some people think it could be a dec as long as a decade between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, I tend to think that most of these transition periods are less than a year, so it's not going to be that long, but we really don't know. It's just pure guesswork. God says these 70 years have been completed for Babylon. From 586 B.C. when the temple was destroyed to 516 B.C. when the temple foundation is relayed is again 70 years. So God is precise in the way he looks at these numbers. They're not fluid. They're, they're not some sort of allegorical number that you just jump in there and say, well, 70, just that's 7 times 10. 7's a perfect number. Uh, 10's the number for this. Well, let's just you know massage it some way, which is how uh, many people want to handle numbers in Scripture. The numbers that we're going to see in this chapter are, are important to understand, and they are to be taken literally. Because what you see here is that just as the, these, these numbers, 70 years, were precise from 605 to 535, precise from 586 to 605, when we come to the end of the chapter and begin to talk about this vision that Daniel has of the 70 weeks, the 490 years God has decreed from Israel, those numbers are going to be treated, must be treated 
just as literally and just as precisely as the other numbers. You can't come in to this prophecy in Daniel 9 and say, well, well, these, these initial numbers are, are, are literal, but when we get down here to the end, oh, well, they become figurative. You can't, what, whatever, uh, what's the old text is saying? You know, you gotta, you gotta dance with the, the one who brung you. You know, what that means is you got to, uh, if you're gonna start with a literal interpretation, you have to end with a literal interpretation. You can't, uh, change interpretive schemes and hermeneutics. And y'all are grinning. You never heard that old text is saying. <laughs> you can't change, you know, it's like the, another good old text is saying, you can't change horses in midstream. You've got to stick with whatever you start with. If you're going to start with a literal interpretation, you have to stick with a literal interpretation. And so, um, unfortunately, when you read some of these uh, people today, uh, like the post-millennialists and the preterist interpretation, when they come to Daniel 9 and this vision, they just they, they, their whole system falls apart because they can't figure out where that Daniel 70th week uh, was fulfilled. So Daniel 10, I mean, Jeremiah 29.10 gives us the precise number of 70 years. And so when Daniel reads this, Daniel begins to look at his own life and, and counts up his birthdays and goes back to 605 and says, it's been 67 years. God said it would be 70. We need to start getting ready to go home. And so he's beginning to put together the promises of God from uh, Deuteronomy from Leviticus from First Chronicles, and he knows that God is about to return them uh, to the land. He meant seventy years, and he said seventy years. Then in verse eleven, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, God says, "For I know the plans that I have for you." God has a specific historical plan for Israel that He is working out, and they are plans for welfare, not for calamity. They are plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Notice here in verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11, we're talking about Israel's return from Babylon. Now, that's important. If you're taking notes, you need to make a note of that. In Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, we're talking about Israel's return from Babylon. I mean, Judah's return. I want to be precise here. Judah's return from Babylon. This is a partial return. Verse 11. God has a future for them. There is a future for Israel, and there is a, it's a future and a hope. It is a positive plan. Then when we get to verse 12, God says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And in verse 13, verse 13, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, verses 12 and 13 indicate a national return to God. Then you, you all, second person plural, you all will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that verse, verse 13, that terminology goes back to uh, terminology in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that after they are taken out of the land, when they are returned to the land, they, they must be searching for God with their whole heart. So this is a promise, and verses 12 and 13 tell us that this is a potential. 10 and 11 is actuality. That is the re partial return from Babylon. But verses 12 and 13 are a potential, and that potential is dependent upon positive volition on the part of Israel to turn to God, and then he would restore them from all the nations. 
That includes the northern kingdom that was sent out in, in 721 B.C. and the southern kingdom that's sent out in discipline in 586 B.C. So this is a potential, and it is dependent upon them searching for God with all their heart. And that's a quote from the Palestinian Covenant in Deuteronomy 31 through 10. So the potential of a complete return is there. For Daniel in 538 B.C., there is a actual potential that if the entire nation returns to God and seeks God with their whole heart, that God will bring all the Jews, not just the dispersion from the southern kingdom of Judah that took place in 586 B.C., but also those that went out in the dispersion of the northern kingdom when they were overrun by Assyria in 721 B.C. God will bring them all back. There is a real potential here at this point of millennial blessing and the coming of Messiah and getting the land that was promised in the Palestinian covenant. That is, that's the potential. And so Daniel is going to recognize that, and he is going to focus on that, uh, that potential, that variable in his prayer. Now, it's easy for us, like a good Monday morning quarterback after the Raiders lose, just had to pull your leg, is to figure out what went wrong the day before and what, when the right play should have been called. Well, Daniel... We look back at, at what went on with Daniel in 538 B.C., and it's easy for us to see that, well, the Jews did not search for God with all their heart. So Dan, uh, Dan, we must recognize that Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13 is just as real a potential for Israel today as it was in 538 B.C. God still holds that promise out. This is an unfulfilled promise that God has made to Israel that will one day be fulfilled. When they seek for Him and with, a, with their whole heart, and the whole nation turns to Him and seeks Him in prayer, then at that time, according to the promise in Deuteronomy 30, it's at that time that God's going to give them the land that He promised, the full land that God promised them back in the Abrahamic covenant and the Palestinian covenant. So in Daniel 9, Daniel is going to put together all of these passages, and he is going to, on the basis of his study of the Word, going to put together one of the most fantastic prayers in all of Scripture. And by studying this prayer, we can learn a lot about our own prayer life and be challenged in our own prayer life. So Daniel puts together the information from Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13, information from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 and 3, Information from Leviticus chapter 26, and he knows that God has a future plan for Israel. That future means that they're going to be in the land and that he eventually will bring all of the Jews back. There will be a national revival and they will have the land that God promised them. Now, I want you to think about this because this puts you, you've got the same information Daniel had. This puts us as believers in an incredible position. Think about the confidence that we have. We know, number one, that, that the earth is not going to self-destruct in a nuclear war. We know, number two, that Israel is not going to be pushed into the sea. Just think about this. If, if, if you had a president in the White House who really understood this and, was, and had, had the nerve to push it to the limit, he could outbluff any nation with a nuclear threat in, in the world because he knows it's not going to self-destruct. He knows God's in control. He knows God has a plan, and man can't foil that plan. 
That gives us tremendous confidence. We can look at what's going on around us. We can look at all the terrorist activities. And we can say, well, there may be a lot of chaos and calamity in our own lives. There's no guarantee that there's going to be stability or or security ever. But we can relax knowing that God's in charge and that his plan is going to work out. And not only that, but just as Daniel was able to, to put together these passages of Scripture and have tremendous confidence, almost it almost seems to us, as we look at this, I want you to notice, it almost seems to us the way most of us want to handle prayer, that Daniel is out of line and arrogant when he prays to God. That's because of the confidence he has from God's Word. And we're going to see that that's not true for just Daniel. That was true for David, and that was true for many other Old Testament saints. They had a certain boldness and confidence, uh, uh, almost bordering on insubordination when they went to God in prayer sometimes because they understood God's Word and they were holding God accountable to His promises. And that's the same thing that we can do as believers. We're to come boldly before the throne of grace and have confidence before Him according to Hebrews. And that is true because we know the Word and because we have the doctrine in our soul and we understand these principles, we can do the same kind of arguing with God. And I don't use arguing like you use it when you're home with your wife or your husband. I'm using arguing in the sense of a, of a trial lawyer before a judge making a case for a certain position. We can establish that same kind of position before God, but it takes time. And Daniel took time to do this. And we're going to see why, how that impacts things. So, and um, starting in verse 3, we're going to look at Daniel's prayer and demonstrate the point that great men of the Bible did not have this kind of bailout fatalism when it came to their prayer life that characterizes so many Christians. We get this idea, well, okay, God, you said no, I'm just going to give up and quit praying. I'm not going to mention it again because, uh, uh, you know, it didn't happen right away. Or we just have some bullet prayer to God on the way to work one day and nothing happens, so we just give up and say, oh, well, God will do whatever he wants to do. And uh, we, we use Jesus' statement in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, as just some sort of catch-all bailout to have wimpy prayers and never actually challenge the grace of God to in our, in our lives. And part of grace orientation, part of grace orientation means that we are going to uh, challenge God to be true to His Word. And we're not afraid of calling upon His grace in our lives. Just a great story that I heard recently. I think I've told you already since I've been back. I was uh, sitting around talking with Jim Myers when I was over in Kiev. And Jim was telling the story about how years ago when they needed some room down at uh, at Baraka uh, Church in Houston that, that they were getting rid of the library. And they had a, probably a couple of thousand books in church library. And so they, they were going to get rid of it because they needed to use that space for office space. And uh, he happened to be at the church at the time. This was in the early 70s. And he asked, um, and the pastor there, Pastor Theme, asked him if he would like any of those books and to take, take all the books you want. And Jim looked at me and he said, you know, Robbie, I just wasn't grace-oriented enough to take every one of them. See, we're afraid. You know, if somebody comes up to us and say, here, <clears throat> I've got $20,000, take whatever you need. We'll take a hundred or two hundred dollars, maybe. If you take all of it, you're grace oriented. If you take a hundred bucks, you, you, you may be able to spell grace. If you take a thousand, you might be able to spell grace two days in a row. 
But that's what grace orientation is, and when that is applied to prayer, that's exactly what what um, Daniel is doing here. He's going to the throne of grace, and he's saying, God, you promised this. Look at what you said in your word. You said that if we seek you with our whole heart, and as a representative of the nation, I'm coming before you. I'm confessing the sins of the nation. I am challenging you, and I'm calling upon you on the basis of this promise to take us all back home right now and give us the land. And he's saying, be true to your word. Give us every bit that you've promised us right now. He's not afraid to call upon God to give him everything God promised to give him. Now, most of us are too, too wimpy in prayer. We, we thought somehow this is insubordinate. This is out of line. We're, we're, we're not doing what God wants us to do, and we're not respecting his authority. And that's, that's garbage. When God says no, and he means it afterwards, as he does with Daniel, th- that's when you stop. Just like after Paul uh, prayed to God three times to remove the thorn in the flesh... Then uh, Paul finally quit, but only after God explained to him why he had to leave, leave that thorn in the flesh there is because he was teaching uh, Paul something about humility and that God's grace, once again, see, we're back to grace orientation, that God's grace was going to be greater than any difficulty Paul experienced in life. So Daniel is going to pray here because he's grace-oriented, and he's going to call upon God to do everything that God had promised the Jews in these Old Testament passages. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples, six passages of powerful prayers in the Old Testament. Let's look first at Psalm 13. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? The psalmist is going through suffering. This is what's called a lament psalm. You remember when we went through our Old Testament orientation course, and for those of you who haven't uh, much understanding of the Old Testament, you need and weren't here for that, you need to get those tapes. When we went through that Old Testament series, I went through and said that there were about five different kinds of psalms. There's lament psalms, there's praise psalms, there's thanksgiving psalms, there's uh, individual lament psalms, communal lament psalms, and this is a lament psalm. And a lament psalm is when the psalmist is going through some sort of adversity or crisis, and he's calling upon God to answer him. And you watch the viewpoint of the psalmist shift is he focuses on his trials at the beginning of the psalm and then halfway through he usually shifts and begins to focus on the character of God and then by the end of the psalm he's praising God whether he's actually delivered him or not he realizes God's uh, God's essence is greater than his tri- his trials and his own difficulties so here we see the psalmist coming to God and he says Lord how long do I have to go through this adversity see now this is divinely inspired under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. David is not afraid. He's not saying, oh, Lord, I'm re- I, you know, I know I really shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't whine, and I'm not upset. But he's, he's got boldness and courage to go before throne, the throne of grace because he understands his relationship with God. At the core of this is the kind of thinking that I am made in God's image. I am made to have a relationship with God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross, I am on speaking terms with my Creator. I can come boldly. In fact, I am commanded to boldly go into the throne of grace and to have confidence in front of the sovereign God of the universe and make my requests. I'm not going to go in there and just kind of hang my head and shuffle my feet and look at my toes and just kind of kick the dirt. Oh, gee, Lord, you know, well... You know, maybe it'd be nice if I just don't want to bother you with this. And, you know, I just, uh, and that's how most people pray. We don't have any guts in our prayer life because we don't understand grace. So the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? He's in places, 
you get into some of the lament psalms, and it's almost like the psalmist gets in an argument with God, saying, God, you promised this. This is what's happening. How can you let it happen? This is your character. This is what you promised. Stick with your promise. It it borderlines on on arrogant insubordination, but it doesn't quite cross the line because the psalmist is in humility relying upon what God has already promised and said. So you can't do this if you don't know any doctrine. If you don't know the word and you don't know any doctrine, you don't know the promises that God's made, you try this, you're just going to be arrogant and out of line and get drop, drop kicked out of the throne room of God. But if you know doctrine, this gives us courage to do this. We've done, done, gone through some of these passages in the New Testament as well. And this is why, just to give you a, a brief explanation ahead of time, this is why Daniel fasts. He doesn't fast because that's going to impress God. He fasts because in the ancient world, they didn't have a microwave. They couldn't run down and buy TV dinners. Uh, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't run by Burger King on the way home and get something to eat. Preparing food, eating food, cleaning up after a meal was a lengthy, time-consuming affair. And he's so busy trying to understand God's will and craft a solid petition before God that he doesn't want to be distracted by the time uh, constraints of eating. That's why they fasted in the ancient world. So sometimes you just get really caught up in a job, you something you're doing, you're working on something down in the basement, you're working on some project around the house, you're working at work, you're just so consumed with your task that when you look up and you go, oh, I just went right, worked right past lunch. Well, that's what fasting was. They were so consumed with the task at hand because it was important that they weren't going to be distracted by the time it would take to go have lunch or go have dinner because they're, they're too busy studying the Word. So that's what's happening. Now, in Psalm 13, the psalmist goes on to say in verse 2, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? He's he's really saying, Lord, how long are you going to go on not answering my prayer? And David is is specifically uh, asking God to intervene in these historical events. He says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? How long am I going to be sorrowful all day long? Because of these events, you're not handling things like you should, Lord. How long is my enemy going to be exalted over me? You can just think of him praying this one day when he's feeling down and discouraged after Saul has been chasing him around the wilderness of Judah uh, for several weeks trying to take his life. That, that David is saying, Lord, you promised me to be that I would be king over over Judah. You promised that I would be king. You anointed me. How long is this going to go on? I'm just miserable. I'm tired of sleeping on the ground. I'm tired of my clothes being dirty all the time. I'm tired of waking up with lice in my hair in the morning. I'm tired of the mosquitoes and the gnats and the ticks. I'm tired of having to go to a latrine out here uh, day in and day out and never having a bath, never having a shower. And, uh, how long is this going to go on? Come on. You promised. See, that's the kind of argument you have in these verses. Now, here's another one in Psalm 44:23. The psalmist says, Wake up, Lord! How many times have you been praying for something in your life that has been uh, all-consuming, and you think God's asleep at the switch? That you have these crises going on all around you, and you th- you've been praying and praying and praying, and uh, white-knuckling it, going driving to and from work as you pray to God to solve your problem, and you think, Lord, are you, are you listening? Wake up. Well, that's what the psalmist said. Arouse thyself. Why dost thou sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Now, he's not being insubordinate. This is the kind of prayer that you can get 
you can engage in if you have a personal relationship with the Creator God of the universe and understand doctrine. Another passage, third passage, Psalm 74.3. The psalmist uses an imperative of request here. Turn thy footstep toward the perpetual ruins. He's talking about the temple here. This was written during a time when the, the, the temple has been uh, under attack and is calling upon God to take a good look at the temple, how it's been uh, just ignored by uh, because of all the false prophets and the apostasy in the land. And he's calling upon God, wait, wake up, where have you been? Your temple is a mess. Your temple is in ruins. Turn thy footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. And then again, that same psalm, in Psalm 74, verse 11, he says, Why dost thou withdraw thy hand? Now remember, in the ancient world, they tended to wear robes. They didn't have a pair of Levi's with a pocket. They didn't have an overcoat with a pocket. So if they were going to, to, do, to, to rest, they would put their hand inside their robe. They would, instead of having their hand out and active, if you're going to pull it back, you just pull it back and stick it inside your robe. So that's what he's saying. God has withdrawn his hand. He's no longer actively involved in uh, history. He says, Why have you withdrawn your hand, even your right hand, from within thy bosom, destroy them, even though your hand has now been placed, you know, like those pictures you see of Napoleon with his hand inside his coat. Even though your hand is inside your bosom, destroy them, Lord. He's calling upon God to wipe out the enemy. And then again in Psalm 142.4, he calls upon God to wake up and pay attention to the details. He says, look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. Now, this is a soldier praying here, and it's in the context of thinking about battle and using a battle imagery. And when, a, when, when soldiers would go into battle in the ancient world, they, they wore their shield on their left, left arm. And so they were protected on their left side by their own shield. And the guy to their right would protect him with their shield. So you'd be next to each other. And you were protecting yourself and the guy to your left with your, your shield. And you would be behind the guy's shield to your right. But he's saying, look to the right and see there's nobody there. I'm exposed on my right flank, Lord. Nobody's protecting me. You're the one who's supposed to be protecting me. And nobody's caring. You're not even caring. Wake up. Get with the program. Solve the problems in my life. So you see that there is a, a strong sense of confidence there that calling upon God to intercede and get involved in, in the life of the person praying. And then one other example is in Second Samuel chapter 12. This is in the context of... Uh, David's prayer that the child that was born to Bathsheba would not die. We read in verse 14 and 15, However, because by this deed, this is the announcement of divine discipline on uh, by God, this is through the prophet Nathan, that the child would die. Nathan said, However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house, and then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. In verse 16, David therefore inquired of God for the child. That means he went to an intense period of prayer for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. He's fasting. He is imploring God to save the life of the child. He's arguing with God through prayer all night long to not take the life of the child. See, even though God has announced exactly what he's going to do, the man of God recognizes he still has some room to fudge. Daniel's trying to take advantage of this. He's trying to, to pierce that, that, uh, that, that fudge factor and to uh, see if he can convince God to change his mind. 
So David inquired of God for the child. He fasted, went and lay all night. And the elders of the household stood behind him in verse 17 in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling and he would not eat food with them. He is just passionately, intensely praying to God and arguing with him. Then look at what happens in verse 18. Then it happened on the seventh day. So for seven days this has been going on. David won't eat. David won't do anything. He won't leave. He won't sleep. He's arguing intensively before the Supreme Court of Heaven to reverse the decision. It happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. Of course, this guy's been acting like a nut for a week. You know, he won't eat. He won't sleep. He's in there arguing with God. What's going to happen now if we go tell him the child's dead? They said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he wouldn't listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? Look at what David does. In verse, um, lost that slide, in verse uh, 18, verse 19, what happens is that David comes back, and David cleans himself up, takes a shower, goes out, has a feast. And they're all confused. They don't know what's going on. How in the world can you do that? And David's answer is very simply, and says the reason he did that is while the child was alive, he had a chance to change God's mind. But once the child died, he couldn't change God's mind in mind, so he accepted the ruling of the Supreme Court of Heaven, relaxed, took a shower, went out, and could enjoy himself again because he knew that he had done all he could to reverse God's decision. So in verses 20 through 22, uh, David uh, cleans up his act and basically says that while his son was dying, he could change God's mind. But after that, he couldn't do anything to change God's mind, so why whine about it? See, there's a time to pray, and there's a time not to pray, and sometimes we don't have the courage to pray when we can. Well, Daniel had the courage to pray in Daniel chapter 9, and if we lay it out, the first 14 verses form a lament confession. This is like a lament psalm, but this is a lament confession when in the first 10 verses, or from verse 3 through verse 10, Daniel is going to outline and confess Israel's sin. And then in verses 11 through 14, he is going to emphasize God's holiness, God's righteousness, and his justice. And this is an important principle because we ought to recognize that at times when we are confessing our sin, we don't have to do this every time. This isn't some sort of ritual. But when we remind ourselves in the midst of confession of God's holiness, then it prevents us from blaming God for our sin and our failures. See, that's what happens sometimes. People start confessing their sin and they realize you know, they start focusing on their circumstances. Next thing you know, they're, they're blaming God. Well, you know, this is my sin nature. You made me the way I am. and So it's really not a sin, and it's really not that bad. And, and uh, yeah, some people actually do that. But it's all part of arrogance and self-justification. But when we focus on the holiness of God, that keeps an absolute objective standard out there. And we recognize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we continue to sin even as believers. And God still in His grace forgives us. Then in verses 15 through 19, there is we have Daniel's petition. And then we have the answer given to him, starting in verse 20. So in verse 3 we read, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him, to seek Him by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So the first part of it, Daniel is saying, I gave my attention, I made it a priority. He literally, what the, the, it's an idiom here in the Hebrew. It's the cow perfect of the verb natan, meaning to give, plus the verb for a penny, for face. I gave my face to the Lord. 
It's an idiom for meaning that I turned my attention, I turned my face completely to the Lord. I gave my uh, undivided attention to Him, and to the exclusion of everything else in life. I'm going to. I'm not going to worry about food. I'm not going to worry about sleep. It's the same kind of attitude that David had. I'm going to make this prayer the highest priority in my life right now. Application here. It's important to pray without ceasing. That's First Thessalonians five. Uh, 5.19. We need to pray without ceasing. We need to have bullet prayers all day long. But there are times in life when we need to have more significance in our prayer life. We need to think about what we're praying. We need to study the Word. We need to formulate uh, a biblical prayer. And then we need to take it before God. And so when Daniel says here that I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him in prayer, it's not simply the act of the petition, but he's talking about the entire process of studying the Word to figure out what his basis was in his prayer before he went to the Lord in prayer. If you read through the prayer, it didn't take long. But he had to know what he was praying for. He had to understand the Word. He had to formulate his argument before he went to the Lord, and that took time. So this involves all of the Bible study that precedes the actual prayer itself. And then he says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer. And this is the Hebrew word, bakesh, which means to seek, to seek intensively. And this is the same word that was used in Jeremiah 29:12, And it's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 30. When God says, if you seek me with a whole heart. And what we'll see here is that this whole section is saturated. And and Daniel's prayer is saturated with vocabulary from Deuteronomy and from Jeremiah. And that tells us that because his prayer is so saturated with his scriptural vocabulary, that his soul has been saturated with doctrine. This isn't just some flippant, uh, idiomatic prayer to God, but he is using words that are deeply rooted in the promises and the revelation of God in both Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah. So the principle there is that powerful prayers are saturated with biblical vocabulary. Why? Because God likes us to remind Him of what He has promised and what He has said. He wants us to, uh, to argue with Him on the basis of His own revelation. And that is exactly what Daniel does here. For example, in verse 6, in this verse, Daniel is using the words of Jeremiah. He's using Jeremiah's vocabulary. Some passages you can look at, look up are Jeremiah 1.18, Jeremiah 7.25, Jeremiah 25.4, Jeremiah 29.19, Jeremiah 35.15, Jeremiah 44, verses 4 and 21. I'll give those to you again. Jeremiah 1.18, 7.25, 25.4, 29.19, 35.15, 35.4. Four and twenty-one. Daniel is going to use these this background to call upon the Lord and to pray to Him. This is what he says in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah twenty-nine, twelve. Then God said, "Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek Me and find Me." So Daniel is applying this and saying, "God, I'm seeking you. Return us to the land. I'm calling you to be true to your word." So we'll see how God answers that, uh, the remainder of the principles on powerful praying next time, and how God answers that. Now let me remind you, next Wednesday night, no one will be here. We're going to be here on Tuesday night. So don't forget, Tuesday night next week, not Wednesday night, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for its encouragement. We thank you for the confidence it gives us. 
We thank you for the certainty that it gives us in, in human history and in our prayer life that we can come before you, come before your throne of grace with confidence, first of all, because we know that we have a relationship with you because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history so that the doorway has been opened. All we have to do is walk through that doorway, that is, by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So the salvation is simple. Father, we thank you for our access to you and to your grace because of what Christ did on the cross, the boldness, the confidence that that gives us. Help us to understand these things that we've studied and see how they apply in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.